You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. My name is Jane Olmeyer, I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Health, for those of you that don't know me. And one of the great privileges of working in the Trinity Longroom Health is to work with some amazing visiting research uh, fellows. And Flemish Lalo is very much um, right up there. Uh, 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 he's been an absolute joy. We've been here since January. Uh, I'm going to leave the formal introductions to Steve Wilmer, and the, who will also then do the fellow and focus with Premesh. But I just wanted to say a few words about our scheme, our visiting research fellow scheme, because we've got co-funds, which are 12-month Marie Curie-funded fellowships, and then we've got visiting research fellows who come for a month, two months, three months, it depends, that are nominated by colleagues uh, across our schools. Um, and. It's a lovely combination, actually, of, of, of uh, fellows. And then, of course, they work very closely with so many of the early career researchers in the building, and it's lovely to see so many of you here as, as well. Um, and and Premish runs the equivalent of the hub in Cape Town. So if he invites you to go to Cape Town, just say yes. Um, because what he has created there is very special. I, I love to think what we've created here is very special, but, but actually... Premish has done something really remarkable um, uh, in Cape Town, and obviously he'll talk a little bit about that. But he and I also work together in, in a consortium called the um, Consortium of Humanities uh, Institutes, um, CHCI, Centres and Institutes, which is an international um, group of humanities research institutes dominated by the United States, but we're trying to muscle in on the action a little bit um, and it's the body that's having its international conference here in June um, uh, and it's also the body that funds this crisis in democracy initiative that, that we're doing so that's where really I first got to know uh, Pramesh and then when he said he was on leave and you know he'd like to come to Dublin I thought fantastic and it's really been such a pleasure to have you with us um, we would love to keep him um, uh, and he'll be back in June, uh, but it, it, it's, I can't tell you how much we've enjoyed having you, Pramesh. So we look forward to hearing about what you're doing, and Steve, thank you very much indeed. Steve Wilmer needs no introduction, but for those of you who don't know him, Steve recently retired as professor of drama here in Trinity, um, and Steve is going to uh, curate um, uh, the next hour with Pramesh. But as I say, it is informal, so please help yourself to, to more sandwiches, and um, over to you. Uh, thanks very much, and uh, I do want this to be a kind of interaction with the audience as well. Uh, so I'll just say something about Femish. First of all, Femish Lalo uh, is Professor of History and Director of the Center for Humanities Research at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. His books include The Deaths of Hinsa, Post-Apartheid South Africa and the Shape of Recurring Pasts, Remains of the Social, Desiring the Post-Apartheid, and Becoming BWC the University of the Western Cape, Reflections, Pathways, and Unmaking Apartheid's Legacies. Professor Lalu is also a board member of the Consortium of Humanities Centers, as James just said, uh, and former chairperson of the Handspring Trust for Puppetry and Education. You might know that uh, Handspring Puppets uh, are here in uh, uh, Borgosh uh, Energy Theater next uh, in two weeks' time doing <coughs> War Horse which was done in the National Theatre and, and then was made into a film by uh, Spielberg. Spielberg. Um, 
And uh, uh, Hermish is also a former trustee of the District 6 Museum in Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, as uh, Jane said, he's currently uh, a visiting research fellow here. And his, uh, he's working on a monograph entitled The Techme of Trickery, Race and Its Uncanny Returns. And I think we'll perhaps get on to that uh, in a little while. But we'll start with a, a film that uh, Femish wants to show, which he's made uh, about uh, some work that he's done recently. Thank you very, very much, Steve. And thank you, Jane, for this wonderful opportunity and for the help for the generosity this is. Uh, much better than what we have in Cape Town, so, you know, uh, in many, many ways. So thank you very, very much for the opportunity and for the uh, exchanges that we've had over the past few weeks with some of the fellows in the centre. Um, I suppose I want to start with a three-minute clip uh, that's drawn from a 30-minute documentary, which is my first. So it's a so-called film. Uh, everyone in our centre is required to take a documentary film class to think through a different medium. Uh, it's taught by Francois Fester, who's made some beautiful films, including one called uh, The Dream of Shahrazad, uh, which I would encourage you to, to, to see at some point. Uh, but this is a film that came to me uh, as a result of the murder of one of our puppeteers, our fellows in Cape Town, in a township in Cape Town. Tzadile uh, Daki, better known as Ned to many of us in, in Cape Town, had worked on the Warhorse, um, in fact was one of the most important uh, technicians on the making of the Warhorse. Um, and together with a group of puppeteers that had worked with Handspring, and had been trained by Handspring, um, had gone out one evening, came, came back to his house in uh, Delft in Kaili Church, in a uh, township just outside of Cape Town, and was shot and killed um, in the process. And I was busy doing the documentary from class, and I made a, a, a very small, it's a very brief tribute, uh, part of it was the making of these puppets for the next production of a rural project that I'm involved in, which I'll speak about a little later. So I wondered if I could show you just three minutes of this, uh, and then we'll get on to the more substantial discussion. Uh, sorry, no, you might have to help me. Yes, Yeah, you can just... Uh,
So you've got a uh, three-minute clip of a 13-minute film. Uh, it's uh, called uh, Looking for Ned. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the making of it and how it relates to your research, because uh, there's a number of themes that sort of appear in the film. Uh, one of them is the relationship between humans and non-humans, uh, animals, and uh, a human uh, impersonating the, the, uh, the animal, uh, perhaps disappearing inside the animal. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Ned uh, it doesn't really feature in the film. The film is more about uh, his friends, who were, if you like, looking for him because he's dead now, or missing him. Or, so it's, the film is about loss, Maybe you could say, um, who's the audience for the film? Uh, thank you very much, Steve. So, you know, the, the, there's, there's very much a personal tribute that's uh, at stake in the, in the making of this film. And part of it was, you know, that uh, number of the puppeteers that came out of Handspring, which was a second generation of puppeteers who had worked on the war horse. And once the war horse, which had been seen by over 9 million people around the world, once it came to a close, there was this worry about the people who worked in the factory building these horses, uh, especially this generation of young, young puppeteers. Um, the Center for Humanities Research at UWC then teamed up with the uh, Handspring Puppet Company, and we decided on a next generation project. Uh, went to the Department of Science and Technology and persuaded them that the question that was at work here was a question that was of interest to more than simply the world of the theater, that it was available to us in so many ways and was so generative about why, how we might think about the human condition in the aftermath of the atrocity of apartheid. Um, and we managed to get some funding through the Department of Science and Technology to fund these young uh, puppet makers in a project that we've developed in relation to a rural area. Um, and you know, for those of you who don't know, you know, apartheid as a divided city in the way that Nicole Leroux, the great uh, scholar of ancient Athens, speaks about that, uh, speaks about it, is a society that is riven with cleavages. And so the idea was to break up the geographies of apartheid um, and to use this project to both think against the logic of apartheid's urban, and, uh, urban planning, but also to think about what happens to the human as a, as a particular configuration after the, in the aftermath of a, a racial uh, form of violence. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, it's an ambitious project at so many levels. But, you know, you raised earlier today the question about post-humanism in an earlier discussion we had. And I've, I've been having an ongoing discussion, disagreement with Rosie Bragotti and my others. Don't ever disagree with Rosie Bragotti. You will never win. Um, <laughs> but Rosie is insisting that, you know, something like the post-human has given us access to a way of thinking about the human and technology. And we have a program in our center called the Becoming Technical of the Human, which is an attempt to argue that somehow, in an uncanny sense, in all the ways we've configured the human and technology, in the co-evolution of those two, two terms, we've found an uncanny return of race. And if you know the puppetry tradition that is being represented here, it's drawn from a Japanese tradition called the Bunraku, Bunraku puppetry tradition. And one of the things about the the puppetry tradition that it draws on, is that there's a worry about uncanniness. So there's a scholar called Masahiro Mori, a Japanese scholar, who has written a very brief four-page document in the 50s about robotics and the uncanny ways in which you know, race is reflected 
in the kind of mimicry between robot and human. So let me just tie that together a little bit. The project here is a way for us to bring the arts and the humanities into a more proximate relation, to generate new ways of thinking about the human condition, to think again about what it might mean to disassemble the apparatus of race, and to put in play another way of being in the world, another way of thinking our way out of the morass and this kind of destruction of this, of this violence that we've lived through. Mm -hmm. And so this production, this project with Handspring Puppet Company and with the Ukwanda Puppet uh, and Design Collective, which they've now formed their own collective. Uh, in fact, they're in Augsburg at the moment doing a production on water with the Augsburg National Theatre. Um, and you know, this is a project that has given us an opportunity to think again about what the humanities might be doing. It's been generative uh, and organic in that sense. Can you say something about how your uh, center works? Because it seems as though it's working as a research center with graduate students, staff, etc., and at the same time bringing in people who are working as puppeteers. So I'm wondering, you know, what is the relationship between the, the different levels of academic background for these people? Yeah, most of the time I have to lie about this question when I speak to the administrators of the university, but I know I'm amongst friends. I, I, I didn't know you to speak truth to power. Um, look, I think it would be important for me to describe where the center is. It's at a university that was... Uh, established as a historically black university. In fact, it was designated for those who were uh, classified as colored in 1960. So before that, uh, before apartheid's high noon, you had many universities that resembled the kind of Trinity colleges, uh, you know, the Oxbridge system, UCT, a whole number of others, many of them known in the world. But the apartheid state created 30 universities based on ethnic and racial grounds. In other words, people were allowed to go to that, those universities only if they qualified, uh, you know, if they made the cut of racial and ethnic markers that, uh, that were the, the kind of driving force behind apartheid. So this was a university established for colored people, so-called. Uh, it was a university that was denied any arts education. So there was a refusal to allow the teaching of, ex of creative disciplines at large number, at most black universities. There was only one black university that had an arts program, and it was the University of Fort Hare, which is where Mandela and others studied. That's the university that was allowed to teach Bantu art, art for the natives. UWC was not allowed an arts education. But this was a university that in 1987 broke the Apartheid Act. And the way it broke the Apartheid Act, it was the first university to allow students from across the spectrum to enter the university irrespective of race, color, creed. Um, and it was led by a phenomenal thinker, a man called Jake Scarborough, who became Mandela's spokesperson. And in fact, that was the university where the ANC negotiated a transition into the post-apartheid. So Kaira Asmal, who came from Trinity, ended up in a building next to mine as the first professor of human rights law. Uh, all of the people who sit, sat in the community law center, who wrote the constitution, the Bill of Rights, they were at UWC. That university, however, has never had an, uh, an opportunity to articulate what it meant to think through the problem of institutional apartheid. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I think, you know, the center has, an, has attempted to hold on to something of the spirit that was available in the late 80s, to think again with that 
and not to, not to think uncritically. I mean, the book Becoming UWC is a critique of the decision by that university in 1987 to declare itself an intellectual home for the democratic left. And we've created, you know, we've, we've cracked ourselves in a very, very tight space through that formula. So the center is a center that is asking us to think again about what the humanities might lend itself to in the reconstitution of the university, in the remaking of an apartheid city, and in thinking about how it is that that institution that is marked as the historically black university <coughs> might have something to say in the world that was never allowed, that it was never allowed or permitted to say. Mm -hmm. So a view on the world, a perspective that allows it to think beyond the kind of question of the nation. So in, in some respects you could say that you're creating a community uh, which is larger than just an academic community. Yeah. Uh, and that in some ways uh, you're reaching out to townships and to people who would never have a university education and uh, bringing them in, uh, but I don't, I'm not quite sure what uh, what role they have within the university or to what extent uh, puppetry is, right. it becomes a kind of uh, embedded part of the curriculum. Yeah, look, I mean, the, it, there's a, a strategic reason for thinking about the puppet as the kind of object through which we want to reconstitute the humanities. Uh, firstly, that we are not allowed to set up an art school in a, in a province where you have several other art schools. So there's a state restriction on setting up new art schools uh, where you have these available at other universities, at neighboring universities. Uh, but more importantly, you know, the critique of apartheid, I would argue, has been found wanting. There's something that we misrecognized in the problem that we were confronting in, in apartheid. And that is a problem that is shared globally. It's the problem of what is revealed in race as a kind of category that both you know, has attachments, or as, and as Stuart Hall would say, is an empty signifier. It floats around and then reattaches. And, you know, so it's both affirming and it can produce the most devastating forms of violence. Um, and so, in many ways, you know, what we're trying to do is to think about what it might mean to constitute a new discussion on the question of race that might lead us into other sets of possibilities and other uh, debates in the humanities. And, and, and here, you know, the, the question of the post-human, the question of the human and technology, and Hannah Arendt had spoken in the 50s about the co-evolution of human and technology, that, that whole that whole set of questions has allowed us to think differently about what we mean by apartheid mm -hmm. and what we understand by post-apartheid desire. Mm -hmm. And it's that question that we want to offer as a certain kind of gift to a global discussion on race. I and mean, we don't think that this is a South African question. Mm -hmm. And we know that Derrida had already, you know, the opening of that exhibition, uh, Art Contra Apartheid in 1983, suggested that we want to keep this word around as a watchword for difference. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes back, it's going to come back in more virulent form than we've anticipated in its uh, kind of practice in the 80s. So, in a way, it's a huge project to try to create a, a post-apartheid situation, uh, which is trying to un, un, uh, unmask uh, all, all the uh, different kinds of structures within the society. And I wonder if you could just uh, reflect a little bit on where... Um, where the um, universities have got to in South Africa. In other words, uh, 
what you're doing is obviously uh, quite radical, but uh, what about the universities like Stellenbosch, Wittgenstein, etc.? Are they are they still uh, pursuing a kind of apartheid policy without saying it? So you know, it's a very difficult question because one has friends at these universities, and one might never speak badly about one's friends. Uh, but I do want to say there's something systemic about this question that is worth uh, thinking about. And it is interesting at a number of levels that after 1994, when the internationalization of universities became possible again, with the end of apartheid and the you know, dissolution of the, the divestment campaigns and the academic boycotts, that all the universities in the North went back to re-establish inst institutional links with institutions that looked exactly like that. Mm. Trinity went, I'm sorry, <laughs> Trinity over the pond on the other side, went and built a relationship with an institution that looks exactly like it. And, and you know, there's a reason for that. They, those were the universities that were known that were before, you know, the kind of uh, moment of apartheid. Saying that in some sense, you know, there's a, a structural problem globally about, you know, what it is that has unfolded in this reopening of South African society. Um, you know, my argument is that all universities in South Africa were apartheid universities. And it is interesting, in 1947, uh, Adam Seitz has written this brilliant essay on academic freedom and the limits of a juridical understanding of academic freedom. There was a judgment passed in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Frank Furter is the judge um, who writes the judgment. And the judgment is about you know, academic freedom in the U.S. One of the big complaints is that there's a Marxist scholar by, by the name of Sweezy. So it's Baron and Sweezy. I read this as an undergraduate. Economic historian taught Marxist texts in his class. And that ended up in the Supreme Court, uh, you know, in a kind of McCarthyist moment. And uh, the judge actually draws on two South African universities statement opposing apartheid, UCT and Wits University. And the first four pages of the judgment is directly quoted from the, two, from the statements made by the two universities in South Africa, which try to, and those, that statement is an attempt to distance the two universities, the liberal universities, from apartheid. To say that they are not involved in apartheid, uh, you know, they not, have nothing to do with this project that is unfolding in the name of Afrikaner. However, I would say that apartheid is inconceivable without the question of liberalism and the impasse that liberalism causes in the 1940s. In fact, it is, apartheid's emergence is because liberalism has not, has, cannot solve the race question. And so the argument that Perbut makes is a, is, a, is a matter of practicality. He says, you know, we will solve liberalism's problem for you. And that speech that he makes in Parliament in 1948 is symptomatic and indicative of that. So the question here is that this is like this, uh, you know, signifier, kind of floating signifier. Apartheid too has attached itself to institutional mechanisms in very, very dangerous ways. And the refusal to reflexively think about that, the, the denialism that is underway in South Africa, where everybody is denying that they had any role, anything to do with apartheid, and that denialism is going to return in an uncanny form. And it is that that I think we ought to at least produce some difficulty. You know, we need to produce some difficulty in the way that return is, is beginning to unfold. It's becoming a more efficient version of racial formation, if you like. I want to return to something in the film before going on yeah. to talk about your research project. Um, and that is that uh, there, 
It's about uh, somebody who's died. So it's a very sad film in some ways. Um, it's also about somebody who um, is maybe um, using different skills that he may not have known that he had initially. So it's a, it's a kind of a celebration of somebody who develops very uh, talented uh, uh, skills and uh, becomes a, a successful puppeteer, not just in South Africa, but also uh, internationally. Um, so I wonder to what extent it's, um, if you like, um, a film about um, a different kind of problem in South Africa, which is uh, the, the fact that there's so many townships, there's so much uh, inertia in the in the society, which obviously relates to apartheid, but, re but uh, is, is a current problem, that is to say, how do you change um, society uh, economically? And uh, how do you um, how do you move beyond the problems of apartheid, uh, which which is a social issue, but but slightly different from the economic one? Yeah. Uh, so let me start with the the film on Ned. Um, you see, I think that the truth and reconciliation offered us an you know an an impossible machine. It offered us a recon a, a form of transition that would be unlivable because of the irreconcilability of the terms at the heart of it. So it could function as a juridical form. Mm -hmm. And it, it was that ultimately. And you know, there were great thinkers. Kaida and others were great thinkers on this question. Mandela surrounded himself with the best legal minds. Dala Omar, I cut my you know, political teeth, but these were great legal scholars. And the, the, juri the jurisprudence at work there, as Adam Seitz may explain in the book, was an attempt to outwork the principles of liberal jurisprudence. In other words, to be more true to the principle at work in liberal jurisprudence than liberalism could ever be. And that's the generosity of that moment, is that these guys were saying that we need to be more true to the principles of law than anyone who has invented this as the foundation for modern society. And that's, it's, it's, a, it's a bold and courageous ambition. The problem with it, however, is that it, it thought of this entirely in, the, in terms of the law. So the law was the dominant discourse of the South African transition. It did not think, for example, that it was dealing with a, I mean, it understood this at some level, but it did not know how to grasp it as, a, as part of the discussion that, you know, you had an economic, a, set, a, a form of economic inequality that was unprecedented. South Africa and Brazil are probably the most unequal societies in the world. Um, and you know, it had hoped that the legal precedent would allow it to trick the kind of economic system out of its out of its stasis and into something new. And that this would happen in every other institution. Education would change, so that the law was it was the promise. You know? We now learn 25 years later that the law was you know was necessary but inadequate as a response to this transition. And we've got to think again about what it is we might do to live in the aftermath of apartheid. So this, I always you know, draw attention to this very beautiful moment in Roland Barthes' uh, uh, book on, on Michelet. He has this little piece where he says, you know, history always teaches us uh, how we die, never how we live. And the question for me was, how does one write a history that will enable life, that will be you know, affirming, life affirming rather than a kind of history of deficits and, 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 and despair. 
And so in making this film, I realized that what was at work in, these, you know, in this studio at the Handspring factory that day. And you know, I'd been filming there for days, and this short clip was during a lunch break. I realized that they were transferring a, much of this memory to the object. So the object was functioning both as a, an emotional prosthesis and an attentional prosthesis. <coughs> and I was, one, I was thinking about you know, how important the prosthetic is for the way one thinks one's way out of the out of violence. And you know, the, the only prosthetic we have available is the cell phone these days. But, you know, but there, there might be other objects that allow us to do other kinds of things. And so watching these young people work in that factory that day and talking about Ned, I realized that the object of the puppet was doing more work than simply, you know, community outreach for the university. Mm -hmm that he was actually interrogating something at the heart of the university that we had not come to, to grips with. Now, let me just very briefly say, the piece I've just written on the university now is the coming apart of the Kantian university of the conflict of the faculties. And that, I argue in that piece that, you know, what the South reveals is the wager that Kant put into that, that treatise on the conflict of the faculties in 1798. And it's a wager that is built on 30 years prior to that. He's trying to work on out what is race. Is it intelligence? Is it physiognomy? You know, what is it that we want to name race as race? And you know, he goes about talking about the Gujaratis who can't drink beer and this and that and the other. And he's right about that. <laughs> but I'm arguing that in the coming apart of that Kantian university, we think you have to reinvent the university. And I want us to think about the prosthetic as a serious condition for rethinking the university. Mm -hmm. That the modern university, in all its permutations, whether it's academic freedom, whether it's about studying the human, whether it's about realigning human and technology, all of those will have to take very seriously the work of the prosthetic mm -hmm. and the aesthetic or aesthetic education in that process. Yeah, so you're, you're combining in a way history, aesthetics, and art practice yeah. uh, in your work. And so I want to get on to your, uh, the research you're doing here in Trinity. Right. Um, I mean, you have a very uh, uh, impressive, impressive title here, the practice of post-apartheid freedom. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, so maybe you can explain <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, post-apartheid, I, I presume, means uh, the society that's after uh, 1994, but it may be something more than that. Uh, freedom, again, I'm not sure what you mean by freedom, whether it's a freedom uh, to do whatever you like or whether it's a certain kinds of freedom. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, both of those terms are up for grabs in some sense. So part of the coming apart of the Kantian university, I would say, has actually left us with more to, to chew on. Uh, at one level, you know, the idea of freedom is no longer decided. I mean, we, we, we can pass through this room, come through this room, and we'd have, you know, 20 different understandings of what we want freedom to, to entail. There's certain kinds of principles, there's certain kinds of inheritances that we want to hold on to, but, you know, we're we in a moment when we, where we have to reinvent this concept. Um, and I would say that part of that reinvention is in relation to the understanding of the post-apartheid. That any reinvention, reimagining of the concept of freedom cannot happen without that which names racism's last word, apartheid. And I would say that is where we must set to work, in the kind of Derridian sense of setting to work. Um, 
So I would, you know, think that we, we've got, you know, an opportunity at the institutional side of the university to get out of this defensive mode that we've become, mm -hmm. that has become habitual in the institution. You know, I'm amazed at how many times we, we've narrated the institution's current form in terms of the emergence of neoliberalism and in, a, in the most capacious way, so that there's no room to maneuver. There's no, nothing else to do within the university than to surrender oneself to the despair of a kind of managerialism and so on. And we all know this, we hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm suggesting that in fact we might want to work somewhere else. Mm -hmm. We might want to work on a concept of freedom that might you know, reinvent and reimagine academic freedom but that might even reorganize our sensibilities about how it is we want to think about the world in its kind of contemporary form. Mm -hmm. So I think that the university is an absolutely fundamental part of the discussion that I want to inaugurate uh, in the understanding of post-apartheid freedom. I think that we mistake apartheid as a master's discourse in the Lacanian sense. And in fact, you know, apartheid was sustained through a kind of apparatus of the institutional side of the university. And so the university is absolutely central for me in how one reimagines and rethinks the kind of the social and the political um, concepts that uphold the freedom. Right. Would, so would those, uh, for example, include things like uh, vocational uh, learning, uh, for example, um, lifelong learning, yeah. for example, uh, ways in which uh, people come to the university but don't get a degree, they don't uh, go through the normal sort of academic right. rigor? And that goes back to your earlier question about why these puppeteers who only have a matric certificate and you know what it means to bring them into the institutional space of the university. We are a university that is made up of children who come out of working class families. Uh, and many of our initial programs were around uh, academic, um, adult education, uh, lifelong learning. In fact, we drew on the British tradition. Richards and, and others who have you know cultivated. That's why I was say, asking colleagues here who you know whether people still read Christopher Hill, you know, because Christopher Hill when I was growing up, I, was, I haven't really grown up. But Christopher Hill in some sense was absolutely critical to how we understand you know the world of adult education um, and and what it might mean to to produce other forms of the university. So I taught at a workers' college for many years at UWC. Uh, and those were workers who came for three months for an educational program to learn about you know, the world, mm -hmm. to learn about things that were not necessarily related to the factory. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm very curious about you know, what's happened to that mm -hmm. impulse of the university to lend itself to other imaginings. And, and I suppose you know, I'm very much keen to return us not to the same formats, mm -hmm. but to the same, let's call it you know, romance with the world, you know. Another way of thinking our way in the world, rather than this utter despair in which we kind of narrated the university. Mm -hmm. And I worry about that. I really worry about the extent to which we are now responsible for undoing the university right. and the institutional side. Um, theoretically, you seem to be uh, particularly interested in Deleuze, Rancière, Althusser, uh, well, Foucault. Great French guys, I should. Yeah, French, uh, I mean, French Dublin, French. I should not really be here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, is that right, or are there others that you're... Well, I, I learned very early on from Guy Spivak to be a bricolier. Um, so, you know, I do dip in and out. And, you know, I think I would rather 
figure myself within a trajectory of post-colonial thinking. Mm -hmm. um, much of my work has been, I'm a little dissatisfied by what has become of post-colonial theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I would very much want to hold on to that and to pick up on people like Stuart Hall. I mean, Stuart Hall for me is a, is a critical figure, a voice that we, you know, there's a book published through our center by David Scott called Stuart Hall's Voice. It's a series of essays, that, uh, lectures that he delivered in our center mm -hmm. in very measured Stuart Hall-like tones, you know, mm -hmm. and beautifully crafted, you know, that sense of being in the academy to listen and to learn and to think again, mm -hmm. to feel. Uh, I think all of those senses need to be awakened in the academy. Right. Uh, so just on the theoretical model, I mean, you know, I, I, I kind of worked with an, a range of possibilities. Um, I very much, very early on in the first book, I was deeply embedded in a kind of Foucauldian reading of the archive. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm having a big, big argument with colleagues now about whether biopolitics is sufficient grounds for thinking the political condition we're in, you know, and I, I, I think it's not. You know, I don't think that biopolitics answers the question on human technology coevolution in quite the way we. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Thank you.